All right, let's move on. So where to start here? It's always a question, mindfulness or emotion? Where to begin? So I'm gonna start with emotion. Um, and looking at, so like just taking a little detour into, into science department. Um, and that um, we actually know quite a lot about emotion, uh, probably more so than we ever have. And it's actually this interesting thing, I'll put a little caveat in here. Oh, People who study emotions, like emotion researchers, uh, don't agree on a lot of this stuff, and there is actually very heated debate. And it was just actually awesome, right? That the, the, the emotion researchers can't like get along, <laughs> which is just more proof to the evidence of the fact that we we need to work with these things. Um, so one thing that makes the split, one, the sort of East-West or science dharma, is that like when we look into the Buddhist tradition, we look at you know the, the Pali, the early Pali language, which is what this comes from, Pali, Sanskrit, all the way through Chinese, Tibetan. None of those languages have a term anywhere near what we call in English emotion. The term that comes in early Buddhism in uh, really in Buddhist tradition, it's, it's called chitta. You guys probably know bodhicitta, uh, bodhicitta, uh, in mindfulness, in the third foundation, they call mindfulness of chitta. And it's translated as heart-mind, or mind, which I don't find to be all that helpful. <laughs> what is the heart-mind? We would probably call it in our Western thinking sort of the cognitive, emotional component of our experience. And so the thing about emotions, if we pull that out into, the, into the, the science context, one thing that I want to say, a couple of things I want to say that I want you to remember, and one of the things I want you to remember, is we're not always emotional. Emotion is not present in every single moment, like a mental state, or an object, or an attitude, or consciousness, or awareness. There's certain factors and mental factors, like attention is always present, feeling is always present, perception is always present. There are aspects of our cognitive experience that are always happening. Emotion is not always happening. And it's mostly not happening. You're not emotional that often. Emotions happen in episodes. And so, I hear you laugh, you're like, oh yeah, I totally know that. And so that most people on any given day have anywhere from five to seven to maybe upwards of nine emotional episodes a day. And most of them, probably, you, you, don't, you wouldn't categorize as an emotional episode. But usually, if you think about it, almost every day, there'll be some kind of event that happens. Like that event when you get home after a long day of work and you talk to your wife or your partner or friend. You always give them the story of, oh my God, you're not going to believe what happened today. Every story that you have about what happened today is usually an emotional episode. <laughs> right? I got to work. You know what my boss did again. It's like, or I got an email. It's like, all our stories... Uh, are usually a, of an emotional episode. And so they happen episodically. <clears throat> and in those emotional episodes, um, we, uh, two things that can happen is we categorize emotion in categories of being a constructive or destructive emotion. And so the reason I want to set that up is we, if I, you hear, if you remember anything else, please remember this. We have got 
to get away from this language of negative and positive. Negative emotion, positive emotion um, is really, really a bad barometer to judge emotions because negative emotions are bad, positive emotions are good. I gotta get rid of my negative emotions and I gotta have the positive emotions. That's just not realistic at all. So emotion has no qualitative value or no moral tone. They're not good, bad, otherwise. They have no, uh, the word I would use is there's no qualitative value to emotion. Most people say, well, anger is a negative emotion. That's not true. Anger is an emotion. Sometimes there's a constructive outcome. Sometimes there's a destructive outcome. It can go either way at any time with any particular emotion. So the problem is that anger is a negative emotion and I have to get rid of it. Now, for those of you who are in recovery, you're going to have the 12-step conditioning of anger and resentment are the number one offender and they're bad and wrong and I shouldn't get angry because if I get angry, I'm going to relapse and ruin my life. (laughs) And then what can happen over time is we can become very conflict avoidant or we become very, very passive aggressive or we can actually uh, try to remove anger in a way that actually just causes new and different kind of problems. Right? So anger is not the problem. The question is, what is my relationship to the anger emotion? So inside an episode of anger, if I become angry, do I do or say something that I regret later? So you can diagnose. Have you done something recently when you were angry that later on you regretted what you did or said? Or you regretted what you didn't do or say? That would be called a destructive, what we call a regrettable emotional episode. Does anybody have any regrettable emotional episodes? <laughs> and it's because in, that, in the arising of that experience, we, we, we lost our mindfulness. We, the, the emotions are so intense and so strong that we oftentimes just react. And then the emotional episode goes away and then we drive it home like, I can't believe I said that thing to my wife again or I can't believe I did that or I can't believe I didn't advocate for myself. I, I didn't advocate for myself again. People always take advantage of me at work. My boss is always getting me to do shit I don't want to do. Well, because you don't advocate for yourself because you don't have the anger emotion uh, in a constructive kind of way. Now, it can go either way. You can anger, I use anger because it's a good, easy one. Too much anger can be destructive. Anger, I explode, I outburst, you know, this kind of easy analogy. But you can also have not enough anger can also be destructive. If I don't have enough anger, then I tend to get taken advantage of. I tend to be conflict avoidant. People get the best of me. I maybe end up in destructive relationships where I get taken advantage of constantly. That's because there's not enough of anger can also be destructive. So emotion can be hyperactive or hypoactive. Too much, not enough. And the 12 steps would be the parlance of sort of that six and seventh step where the character defect, I hate that term, but is I have too much anger, the shortcoming of I don't have enough of it. So I'm out of balance with the emotion. And so the, the outcome would be, would be destructive in this particular case. So when we look at like anger is, uh, is one of the universal emotions. There's eight universal emotions. Anger, fear, sadness, joy, contempt, disgust, shame, and surprise. 
are the eight universal emotions. Everybody on the planet has all eight. Evolution gave them to you. Whether you were born in Oklahoma City, Texas, or you were born on the aboriginal tribes of Australia, you all have all eight. You experience the emotion physiologically the same. Every emotion has the same facial expression. Anger. Sadness. Everybody makes that face when they're sad. So when we look at the field of science, we, want to, we don't want to think about emotion so much in the psychology department. We want to think about it in evolutionary biology department. Is that emotions came online. They didn't call, come on, all come online at the same time. Probably the first one that came online was fear. We have fear, the purpose of fear. So all emotions have a facial expression. They all have a physiolog- physiological response. And they all have a purpose. And so the purpose of fear is to identify a threat. Anger, go back to anger. The goal of anger, the reason we have anger is to overcome an obstacle. An obstacle arises in my experience. I need to overcome that obstacle for survival reasons. I need to use the anger emotion to do that. Do you have any obstacles in your life that you would like to overcome or remove? Couple, two, three? You're actually going to need to use the anger emotion to do that. And if you don't have enough of it, you're not going to be able, you're going to stay stuck in that kind of destructive procrastination style. Actually, to be honest with you, the anger got me sober. I had one of those old school, old timer AA dudes in Boston. I got sober in Boston with the meanest, meanest old men you ever met in your whole life. (laughs) And I would show up at the meeting and I would run my mouth and be annoying to everybody in the room, which is what I did. And I would say, I would brag about how I had a day sober. And they would say to me, you know what, kid, you'll be drunk before the sun goes down. And they did this every day for like six months. And then all of a sudden I had six months. Because I would want to drink so bad. I was like, I can't drink because those guys will be right. <laughs> fucking crusty old man. I'm not drinking. I swear to God, I'm not doing it. And before you know it, I had six months. Because I was so angry. I don't necessarily if I recommend this strategy. <laughs> but it did work. Because it was allowing me to overcome an obstacle that I was unable to... It's what I like to call the get shit done emotion. <laughs> but it can also be too much. We can, have too, we can become too, too explosive and too aggressive in, in our anger. And we aren't unable to, to, keep, to keep cool in that experience. Anger, also we could say, there's, there's, a, there's a theory to say, we could say to some degree that constructive anger looks a lot like what we call compassion. Because anger, the, the, the verbal quality of anger, anger is basically saying, I care about this, and what's happening is not okay. Right? So the reason I get angry is because I actually care. And human beings wouldn't have gotten as far as we've gotten if we didn't have this thing that Charles Darwin called cooperation, which is at the basis of compassion. I'm angry, and I care, and I care about you, And because I care, we're going to take an action that's going to be cooperative, that's going to allow us to get out of this dilemma. 
which of course back in the day was not getting eaten by a saber-toothed tiger. We live in a much different world now. But, that, but, but emotion, the anger emotion doesn't know that it's 2020 or 19 or whatever year it is. It still thinks you're back on the Serengeti trying to like outrun the saber-tooth. It doesn't have that information. So sometimes, our, sometimes we become emotional internally in the external environment. The emotion doesn't fit our expectation. Almost not much of the time. Have you become emotional and looked around and go, I'm like, I have no reason why I feel <laughs> There is no evidence to suggest that the way I feel, and you know what? Emotions don't care about that at all. Emotion does not care about logic or reason or time. It just doesn't have that kind of left brain. So big surprise that we struggle with these things so much, right? Big surprise. But when I, when I learned this, when I studied this, when I found all this out and I started to actually map the physiology of my own emotion, I was just like, yeah, these scientists are totally spot on. And I was so glad that I had a Dharma practice where I could actually be like, okay, what does anger feel like? It's fast, it's hot, it's intense comes on quick. It's accompanied by who done it in blaming, <laughs> in revenge, and fixing. So that way, the more that we can kind of gather information about how the emotion shows up in our psychophysiological experience, then we know that I'm like, I'm like, I'm angry. I'm angry right now. I need to be careful what I say and who I say it to. I need to be careful what I do right now because I'm, I'm angry right now. And when I'm angry, I don't always feel good about what I do and say. I need to be, bring mindfulness. I need to be aware I am angry. I need to be careful what I do and say. I need to reappraise this situation and be like, does the level of my anger actually match what's happening? <laughs> actually, not at all, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> You know, like the, the, the actual evidence and the anger that you're feeling are not even at all close. You know, it's still very unpleasant. That's the thing we, I think we really have to come to terms with if I'm going to give you any bad news. Emotions are very, very messy and they're very, very complicated and they're all very, very different. Anger and shame feel very different. Like we say, oh, I'm emotional. Um, yes, you can say I'm emotional, but, but the emotions have their own story. They have their own legacy. They have their own physiology. To feel anger in my body and in my mind and to feel shame are very, very, very different experiences. They're both emotional. I don't particularly care for either one of them. I don't like them. Are they going to stop happening? No. I need them. They have a purpose. A very important purpose. They're really part of our our survival. And so when we, um, what we would call this actually really would be emotional intelligence. Are we intelligent around our emotional experiences? Or do we just become emotional and then do shit? That's mostly, what, that's mostly what the humans are doing. If you take a quick look at the global <laughs> landscape, 
people become emotional and then they do shit. And then when the shit that they did doesn't work out, they blame somebody else. Right? That's pretty much what we're all doing. Well, I mean, I wouldn't have done that if you didn't do the thing you did. I wouldn't have done the thing I did, so it's totally your fault. And that's destructive. Because one of, the, one of the ways that we categorize an emotion being destructive, especially in the arena of human relationships, as soon as I'm unwilling to cooperate with you, as soon as, soon as we're done here, as soon as the relationship is over, as soon as I kind of, I'm not willing to cooperate with you anymore, that's part of the criteria for destructive relationships or destructive emotions. This is primarily true in, in marriages that if you do any research on marriage or divorce, as soon as there's contempt for the other person, it's really, really hard to save the relationship. As soon as you've developed a sort of moral superiority, a type of contempt, and this is true for almost any relationship, it's like there's no more cooperation. I'm right, you're wrong, you need to change, I'm fine the way I am, then it's really, really, really hard to recover whether it's a marriage or a friendship or a work relationship. And this is really why having, uh, which I'll talk more about the end, these really Brahma Vihara practices, the loving kindness and gratitude and, and compassion, really the Buddhist idea of really constructive traits of, of ways to really navigate the emotional world is so important. Because we do, we, and we also, a lot of our wounding, a lot of our suffering has a kind of emotional imprint stamped on it, right? And so if we look at, our, if we look at the narrative of our suffering, uh, it's, you know, it's, it's usually characterized by a strong emotional stamp. And so, so the big ones would be sadness. What is my history of experiences in life? What are the things that have happened in my life that were really sad for me that I haven't really resolved? And they were actually so sad that I actually don't even want to do the sadness thing anymore. I don't, I don't do sadness. And so if I don't do sadness, I have to use a different emotion to regulate that sadness. And if I'm a man, probably going to go with anger because anger is socially accepted for a male, typically speaking. So even to some degree, emotions are organized by gender. So it's much more socially acceptable for me to be angry than for a woman to be angry. And so we, 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 a lot of this stuff is just our conditioning. It's just that we, we learned, in our family system, we learned what emotions we could express and what emotions we couldn't express. And then when we start to practice and start to kind of get into the weeds on some of this stuff through mindfulness, you probably might have encountered at times you feel like, man, it's just a mess in here. Why is it so messy in here? And some of us have over-hyper-emotional, some of us are hypo-emotional, where... We're, we're, we're suppressing constantly, which can be, a, which, which can be I don't want to go down too, too far in the weeds on this. Another talk that I've been doing recently on what's called spiritual bypass, which is very common for Buddhist teachers to get into where you can kind of get into this attitude of like, I don't feel these things anymore, or I'm sort of above all that thing and, and I don't actually, uh, there's so much suppression going on that it can masquerade as a kind of equanimity or a kind of evenness. So actually having access to your emotions is, is very important and also very healthy. 
So when we start to bring mindfulness, so mindfulness is actually sort of your best, your best ally uh, when we're talking about emotions because we really want to be able to develop emotional intelligence. And, and to do that, we really, the, the foundations of mindfulness and the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness are, are really great uh, teaching and way in which um, we can begin to really kind of get into the room of emotions. And as you probably know, where does the Buddha start in mindfulness practice? Does anybody know what the first foundation of mindfulness is? Breath. The breath and the body. Why does he start with the body? Emotions are embodied. Emotions are much more somatic than they are psychological. Emotions affect our psychological experience. They affect our thoughts, our perception, our cognitive function. But they're really, really more in our bodies than they are in our minds. So when the onset of emotion happens, when you have a triggering event and the onset of emotion, the first thing that happens is your nervous system and your vagal nerve and your physiology sort of lights up like a Christmas tree. And you become emotional. Now, when we think about triggering events and emotion, once a trigger is learned, this, is, this, is, this comes from science, I found this to be true. Once something triggers us, once a trigger is learned in the system, it cannot be unlearned. You cannot remove triggers. So if you're finding yourself trying to remove triggers, you should stop doing that because it's not going to work. <laughs> what happens is you can, you, can, you can decrease the intensity of the trigger, but what we want to be able to do is we want to be able to come triggered, the onset of emotion happens, and now mindfulness. That's the kind of pecking order. <laughs> and there's really not much you can do about that. The onset of emotion happens in a 30 second of a second. And also, the scientists say, uh, nature... Evolution doesn't actually want you to be mindful during an emotional episode. Emotions are designed to override the prefrontal cortex because they're about survival. I don't have time to think, like, is that a saber-toothed tiger? Is he going to eat me? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I could like, be his homie. We could, like, I could pet him. We could, you, know, you can't be doing that. You just got to go. So neurobiologically, emotions are designed to shut the mindfulness off because we, we're not supposed to be getting involved. <laughs> So when, we, so when we really start to try to, 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 to do this, we have to have some, I, I find a lot of humility of like, I'm actually trying to learn something, to do something that I'm actually not really programmed to do, but I can do. And I think this is, this, this is why I think that the Buddha was such a brilliant person who actually realized in a very simple way that he, not only himself, but others, he noticed that people suffered in ways that seems to be very unnecessary. Do you suffer emotionally in ways that seem to be very unnecessary? Why am I suffering about this? I don't even actually care. <laughs> And, and then the question was to be able to, to, to come to the question of like, I wonder if there's something that we can do about that. And then we have this 2,500-year-old tradition rooted in this, this, this really this core, core Buddhist practice of mindfulness where we learn to bring awareness to the body, to, to the breath, to the somatic experience. So that way we were, we're learning to kind of monitor the system so that way when the emotion trigger happens, it's almost like a check engine light. 
Now, when the check engine light comes on in your car, you're not screwed. But something's wrong, right? You need, to, you need to kind of inquire what's going on here. So it's like triggering event, emotional onset, mindfulness. Now you actually have kind of a chance if you can get that far. Right? We can kind of, and so then the question becomes, we want to be able to recognize when we've become emotional. You know? And a lot of times we don't know that because we're so, in, in the Buddhist teachings on, on the second noble truth around clinging and craving and reactivity, is that when there's an emotional episode, we react. We get so caught up in this reactivity that the idea of bringing awareness to the process of the reactivity doesn't actually occur to us. Because there's a sense of urgency of like, I need to fix, I need to understand, I need to blame, I need to get rid of, I need to, I need, you know, there's such a needing to do something about urgency that with mindful awareness, we can kind of go, whoa, 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 wait a minute here. And of course, we have, we have these, you know, it's not just anger, it's anger and fear and sadness, it's disgust, it's contempt and shame. And so we don't always need to necessarily know what emotion, the emotion is. It's good if we do, but it's really important to just know, like, I am emotional right now. I don't know which one it is, but I know that I'm feeling it. And I just need to, because it also floods our perception in the way that we, think, the way that we see things. And so when we Again, when we try to blend this back around, so mindfulness, so there's a triggering event, there's an emotional onset, then there's mindfulness. With mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the feelings, the pleasant, unpleasant nature of the emotional experience, mindfulness of the mental phenomenon, the attitude of mind, the distraction, the aversion, the attachment, uh, the, the confusion, the frustration, being able to know that stuff, being able to actually have uh, what they call in neuroscience uh, metacognitive awareness an internal monitoring of like being able to monitor what's happening internally. You know, that's always going to be really useful to do that, but it's not the end of the story. Being good at paying attention to your breath is not the end of the story. The end of the story is the mindfulness arises. The end of the story is I know that I've become emotional. I want to have choice. It's very interesting, this word choice, because... I don't know about you, but when I become emotional, I don't usually choose what I do. I just kind of do some shit. <laughs> and I hope that it works out. <laughs> That's not great. That's not a great you know, way to go. <laughs> but we want to have choice. And also, in the, one of the things that I've been doing that's been very fascinating is I've been holding the science up against what's called the Abhidharma, which is the Buddhist teachings on, on Buddhist psychology. And there's a lots of congruency. And in fact, even in the, in the manual on Buddhist psychology, there's a mental factor called decision, which is, to me, decision and choice are the same thing. That's this ethically neutral mental factor that occasionally arises. And so if we have these triggering events and these emotional episodes and we have mindfulness, and then we get to choose what we do or say, that's almost the definition of freedom. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean it's fun. It doesn't mean it's pleasant. In fact, it's almost always, frankly, a little bit of a pain in the ass. 
But it's this resilience. And it's this, it's this kind of idea that Goleman talks about in his latest book with Richard Davidson. The after becomes the before for the next during. So if I have these little successful emotional episodes or a good meditation or anything, I have new information. So the next time I become emotional, I have another drop-down menu box. I said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Last time this happened, I did this new behavior and it actually panned out pretty good for me. Maybe I'll do that one again. And then that after becomes the before for the next episode. And now you're actually creating this kind of positive feedback loop, this kind of... uh, Dependent origination on steroids where you're kind of like you're training your experience to do something different and to do something new that's constructive. And every time you do the constructive thing, the percentage of you doing the constructive thing next time increases like a half a point. Right? Which is not great, but pretty good. (laughs) So the, the, the statistics at least are in your favor on some of this stuff. And so when we... I'll take some questions here. I don't want to talk the whole time. So the Buddhist map kind of for, for how... To, so how do we embrace this as a lifestyle? Which is to me kind of what... Uh, to me, Dharma or the Eightfold Path as it's traditionally known, which is eight things, which is too many things to talk about. But is this idea of how do I develop a, a lifestyle, a way of living in the world that's based on liberation? That's based on these moment-to-moment experiences every day where I can have these little small victories. These, and they don't have to be epic. These just these small, liberated events throughout the day. I'm like, oh, I, I did pretty good on that one. You know? I didn't assassinate the waitress because my eggs were cold. Or whatever. Or whatever your favorite thing to do is to torture the humans. We all have our, our thing. And so we, we have to be really kind of uh, pretty clear about this. And I think, and, and I always make a big play for ethics, is, is it's Sila Samadhi Panya. It, it's, it, it's a system of training. It starts with really we want to have, uh, we want to, we don't necessarily want it, but we want to consider that maybe it's a good idea if we try to live a life of harmlessness. When we look at the suffering in the world and we look at all of the hard time people are having, do you really want to contribute to adding to more of it? Is it really going to help anybody? And this is where the emotion of contempt becomes very, very interesting. Because contempt is the most destructive emotion in the human system. And in fact, Paul Ekman, the guy who came up with a lot of this stuff, can't even think of any scenario where contempt can be constructive. Contempt is the experience of asserting superiority towards another person. It's, I'm better than you. It's a devaluing of the other person. Now, if we look at our culture and our world and even our political landscape, we don't have an anger problem. We have a contempt problem. I'm better than you. And, 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 I, and I'll say this, too, and I be, try to be very careful about this. Buddhists are as guilty as this is today is long because Buddhists can have this kind of moral superiority because we're the, like, wise religion. We're the best religion. And I see, I see so much Buddhist contemptuous stuff where it's like oh yeah those people it's that attitude of those people and if everybody's walking around doing well, those people we're not going to get anywhere so it's like do we so is my loving kind am I, am I really living an unconditional way of being or is my meta condition towards the people in my community that are thinking the same way that I think 
Because then we're just doing the same things that we're accusing the other people of doing. But we're the better people, so it's okay if we do it. Right? This moral superiority business is insanely destructive. So if we really want to take this seriously, the sila, uh, which is really kind of uh, the way that I describe it, is usually translated as morality or ethics, which is problematic, I think. But it's really the, the kind of discipline that we have to our own sense of integrity. So we don't want to necessarily ascribe to the Buddhist list of what the precepts are, or what we should or shouldn't be doing, or the Ten Commandments. We really need to feel into our own values. What are my values? What are your values? They're probably different. Everybody has different values. It's okay that our values are different, but what are they? And how much discipline do you have to adhere to your own values? Right? That's what's called cognitive balance or cognitive intelligence. Cognitive intelligence means that I have values, and if you watch the way that I live my life, they would be congruent. That's called cognitive intelligence. And it's a huge, huge aspect of the emotional intelligence movement of like, do you even know what your values are, or do you just describe to some list in some book that was written 3,000 years ago and go, yeah, I'm with that list? No, we have different values. We all do. We all should. And then sila is our own ability to adhere to our own sense of values. And of course, in the Buddhist tradition, we, we adhere to values of harmlessness and nonviolence, which aren't that hard of ideas to get behind. Nonviolence, harmlessness, generosity, kindness, not asking for a lot. But how well do I actually live up to those? You know, not always, but that's sila. That's what that practice is. It's a third of the practice. It's maybe the most important part. Because if you don't have that, you don't have shit. Really. If you can't adhere to your own sense of values, then all this meditation and wisdom stuff is just a big, I think, a big waste of time, frankly. And the hypocrisy and sort of the way in which we can sort of become, it becomes a sort of moral superiority. I'm smarter than you, I'm better than you, I'm wiser than you, I know what's best, you don't. Now from this place of sila, then we start to do the samadhi or the mindfulness. From a place of integrity, then we can practice. Then we start watching our mind because we, you know, as they say, we've cleaned up the wreckage of the past. And this is one thing I am a big fan of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I always will be, because I learned sila in Alcoholics Anonymous more than any other place I've ever been in my life more than any Buddhist community, any synthotherapy, anything at all. I learned in AA, man, you stop lying, you do the right thing, you just do the right thing. Dude. You do the right thing for the sake of doing the right thing. And you know what? I'm very grateful for that. Because from that place, when I sit quietly by myself, I don't get barraged with guilt and remorse and shame and wish I hadn't done. To be honest with you, I can't tell you the last time I did something I really feel that bad about. It's been years. So when I sit quietly by myself, not much comes up in terms of that. I'm like, oh man, I really wish. I mean, I do to some degree, but never, never of epic proportions like I used to. And then from that place, then the wisdom comes. All right? It comes after the sila in the meditation. It doesn't come first. Because if it comes first, you're just a know-it-all. <laughs> and nobody likes a know-it-all except for the know-it-all himself. <laughs> 
Do you like people who know it all and tell you, you know what you ought to do? You know what you really ought to do? I've been watching you, and I think what you ought to do is, it's like, really, dude? Does this not, it doesn't go well. Then the wisdom comes out. And what comes out of the wisdom is the understanding that the discipline to my integrity is actually really important. And that actually, when we start to integrate emotion into this, we start to see that a lot of the regrettable things that we do, the harm that we cause, happens in an episode of emotion. When I'm in kind of a non-emotional state and I mostly feel good, I almost never say anything that I regret. It's amazing. But when the emotion comes on, it's just like, I just like... You know, all my woundedness comes back. Nobody, nobody's trustworthy. Nobody loves me. The world isn't really safe. I, I should probably be more of an asshole to people because they're an asshole to me. All my woundedness just arises in that experience. And then trying to manage from that place is not easy. Unless I can recognize, ah, oh, I'm emotional right now. I probably need to pay attention. I need to be careful. So when we start to look at the, the Buddhist philosophy really works good with that because we have these four truths of like, you know, we, we want to become honest about the suffering in our life. We want to become honest about the challenges in our life. Really, as, how honest can you be about how hard shit is? How honest? 50%, 75%? How many people can you be honest with? If you have two or three people in your life that you can be honest with about your suffering, you're doing better than 95% of the population, I guarantee it. How aware are you of the causes? How much information, how much data, how much awareness do you have about that which drives your suffering? How much optimism do you have? How much hope do you have that it can be other than that? Or this third noble truth, this nibonic sensibility of like, oh yeah, I have agency here. And then from that place, we can kind of develop and start to live this liberation-based lifestyle where we, again, we, we, we know what our values are. A lot of people don't even know what their values are. We know what our values are. We have some level of discipline to <coughs> adhering to those. And then from that place, it's kind of this whole kind of uh, mode of operating just kind of starts to just happen. And then it just becomes, it comes, it becomes a, a, a natural awareness. It becomes uh, just a way of operating that you don't have the doubt anymore. You don't question so much anymore. You just know. The Buddha talks about this. The, the, the unshakable faith that I know what to do. I know what to do, I know what to do because it's the right. And so I find, uh, I'll end this, I want to take some questions, but if you have any, I'm sure you do. Um, this really, I think, beautiful balance of, of taking what we've learned from science and psychology and therapy and trauma and recovery and all of uh, the Western world has done a killer job of really, really helping us uncover what sort of drives our neuroses and really what, what's happening in our mind-body system. But that's not enough. But if you take the Buddhist contemplative practices as sort of the vehicle, right, to drive through that stuff, then you have this sort of secular dharma way of which you're, you're actually embracing all of what's available. 
And it turns out uh, that, you know, that, that you can go to college now and study contemplative neuroscience, mm-hmm. which is like the, the building in the university where it's full of neuroscientists and Buddhist monks mm-hmm. talking about this shit, going, yeah, well, I think you can actually do something about that. <laughs> like, there's actually, like, this is a thing. This, this contemplative neuroscience, it's really, really fascinating to me because, uh, and, and, and a lot of what they're saying, a lot of what neuroscience is saying is that Buddhism was right, the Buddha was right about a lot of this stuff. And a lot of what the Buddhists are starting to realize is like, yeah, actually, we need the science because we don't have a great framework. We're operating on this Eastern ancient language, 2,500-year-old thing. We're trying to like, we're like little Annie secret decoder ring trying to figure out what these polytones <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, what does Sankara really mean? It's like, dude, just go with the science of emotions. It's good. We're trying to figure out some, like, dead language and what these terminologies mean because science answered it for you. So it's just really, this, just really, you know, make a play for honest, open-minded, and willing. It turns out to be a pretty good system. So, so I'm going to stop there because I don't want to take up all the time. <clears throat>